Father and our God, we recognize that we are people who, are, who stand here forgiven because of the promises that you have made us in Christ Jesus the Lord. We are a people who understand that if there were not, if it were not for your grace, if it were not for the provisions of your mercy and long suffering, we would never ever be reconciled to you. But because of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, we stand as a people forgiven, a people of promise, a people of covenant, covenantal, eternal promise. And Father, though we have made promises and broken them, we have never known you. We have never seen you. We have never heard of you ever breaking a promise that you have made to us. And so, Father, as people who glory in your covenant faithfulness, we come to sing of grace and mercy to forgiven sinners. Thank you, O God, for all that you have wrought in Jesus Christ for us. Our Father, we are living in a time and an age where people take pleasure and think it is the will of some God to destroy and maim and kill. And I pray, O God, that you will grant wisdom to the leaders of our country as we seek to respond rightly and righteously to all the the stimuli around the world. Father, we pray for the suffering in Bali and ask, O God, that you would bring hope to the people who have lost so dearly in that that inexplicable and inexcusable act of terror. Father, we pray that as a church, the church of Jesus Christ, that we might be a part of a solution in bringing about healing to every race and every tribe and every tongue. Father, we want to be on the side of justice, wherever that is. And we pray that you will help us to see what justice demands and what mercy demands and what grace entreats. Now, Father, thank you for all that you have wrought in our lives. We respond to you in giving, thanking you for the privilege of doing so. We commit these gifts to you, asking that they'll, every dime will be used for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. For those of you who are uh, visiting with us, we welcome you. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, what you've, uh, what's going on. Uh, we're in the midst of a series on marriage. And uh, in coming to this day uh, of where we wanted to invite people that we loved and were uh, lived around. I, I, I thought about um, changing the subject and doing something different, but I thought, what is more relevant than marriage? If you're not married, then I, normally we're thinking in terms of one day being married, and I thought perhaps some input might be helpful. If you're divorced, I thought perhaps we could say things that might elucidate where where it went wrong and how we could uh, correct our mistakes if you are married certainly the input we hope will um, allow you to see something richer and fuller 
and more enjoyable in your marriage. There is a text, and I invite you to turn to it with me. It's found in Ephesians chapter 5. You follow as I read, beginning at verse 25 through verse 28. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This is number four in a series of seven sermons on the subject of marriage. We've been interrupted a couple of times with the missions conference and my being away, but... um, I want to take, uh, beginning at number four, beginning today, uh, and these last four messages, I want to take us in somewhat of a different direction. Um, actually, it'll be an entirely different direction. As I, um, as I contemplated putting together this series, I, I began to think about the things that I had read on the subject, and, and uh, I have a whole shelf of books that I have read on the subject of marriage. I would say there's probably 60, 70, 80 books that I have read. And I must say that um, if there was anything, humanly speaking, that contributed to our 32-year marriage that, that made it work, it was the fact that early on, in the early days of our marriage, we got some real good input from people who knew better than we. Uh, that was just about everybody. But in terms of sermons and, and tapes and books... We got some wonderful data that uh, kind of filtered into our lives through people that, um, that we knew then. But I, but I must tell you that uh, out of those 70 or 80 books or so, so many of them said much of the same thing. They, they had a different story here and perhaps a different uh, slant on things here, a little bit different uh, way of saying things, a new observation here. But in the main... They all said essentially the same thing. There were, however, two exceptions. One book I've been promoting around here for years. It's a book by Mike Mason uh, entitled The Mystery of Marriage. And it makes a wonderful gift. Uh, Christmas is not that far away. If you want to give something to your children, it's a great book. It's in our bookstore, The Mystery of Marriage. But there's another book that's not yet in our bookstore uh, that was also exceptional and also came to the subject or approached the subject in an entirely different way. It's a book by Gary Thomas. Uh, I meant to bring it with me, uh, but I forgot. But the book is by Gary Thomas entitled Sacred Marriage. And at least in, these la- in two of these last four sermons, I want to draw uh, and depend quite heavily on, on that book. A Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. On the front, on the, on the front of the book, the title is, of course, Sacred Marriage. The subtitle is a question. 
And the question represents, ladies and gentlemen, the different direction that I want to go in these last four sermons. Here's the question that Gary Thomas poses. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if? What if God designed the institution of marriage to make us holy as opposed to making us happy? If I could uh, kind of elongate that question myself, put it in my own convoluted way, what if God had an end in mind that went way beyond our happiness? That is, in this institution of marriage, what if he were thinking that his purpose and his goal in this institution of marriage goes way beyond our happiness and our comfort and our desire to be infatuated and happy as if we lived in some perfect place? What if his designs in the institution of marriage were to make us more like Jesus Christ? Can you see how radically that would change things? I, I think you can. If the goal of this institution were to make us holy, as opposed to making us happy, it, it would change a lot of things, ladies and gentlemen. For example, all of the struggles, all of the challenges that you saw portrayed so vividly before you, all of those things that tend to create distance in our relationship would no longer be viewed by us as these painful nuisances, but they would, they would become opportunities. They would become an occasion for spiritual development and growth. Instead of this stuff driving us apart, we would view it as an occasion for cementing and drawing us together. They would be occasions for our development of holiness and Christ-likeness as opposed to instances that made us angrier and angrier at our spouses. Now, I certainly can't say for sure because I, I have not had exposure to the mind of God as, except as he expresses himself in this book. But somehow I'm convinced that that new suggestion is completely consistent with what I know about God and his goal for, for me as expressed in this book that we so love. That is, the more I know him and the more I understand what he said here, the more I'm convinced that there need be no if. Let's just get rid of the if. Uh, what I mean by that is this. What if God designed marriage to make us holy as opposed to making us happy? Forget the what if, ladies and gentlemen. I'm convinced that's indeed what he intends. And what I want to offer you this morning is an entire paradigm shift. 
I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that that is his, that is his intent. That the goal and the purpose of the institution of marriage is not to make us happy, but to make us holy. Now, guys, may I say rather hurriedly that indirectly that makes us happy. That is, the more holy I am, the more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, indeed, that leads to, secondarily, my happiness, my satisfaction, my completion. But the primary goal of this institution is not to bring me happiness. It is to make me more like Christ. I'm suggesting there's no if. I'm suggesting it's fact. And I want to give you five proofs, five evidences, five reasons that I believe we can eliminate the if. Just forget the if. Because it's a fact. That the design of this institution is to make us holy, not happy. Let me give you five proofs and then three other things and we'll be finished. First of all, if that were the right approach to marriage, then that would mean or that would require... That both spouses focus on changing themselves rather than changing their spouse. That is, if the intent and the design of marriage is to make me holy, then my focus in the midst of that institution is not on Susie. It's on me. That is, in terms of changing me. Bringing me into conformity with Christ. Um, you want a text? How about this story? I think you remember it. It's in Matthew chapter 7. It's the story about the beam and the speck. Remember Jesus says, so don't try to get some speck out of somebody else's eye when you got a beam in your own. You know, I, every time I read that story, I try to imagine in my, my mind's eye uh, going into the, to the office of an optometrist and him with his back to me. I'm over in his chair and he's doing something at a, at a desk over here. And, and I've got this problem with my eye. And, and all, over, all of a sudden, he turns around to approach me to, to work on my eyes. And he's got this big two by four that's sticking out his eye. And I'm so, wait, 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 wait. Why don't you get that thing out before you start working on anything in here? That's the intent of that story in Matthew 7. And I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that that, that whole story in Matthew 7 is consistent with this paradigm shift I'm trying to describe to you. That the, if the intent of God, the design of God is to make us holy in marriage, it's as opposed to making us happy. Then it would, it would mean that I would have to focus on myself and changing myself into them instead of worrying about Susie's flaws. Perfectly consistent with Matthew chapter 7 verses 3 and 4. My second proof or my second piece of evidence. This approach to marriage would drive me to draw my whole sense of meaning and my whole sense of purpose and fulfillment from God realizing that Susie, in an ultimate sense, can never meet my needs, can never make me happy. And that, ladies and gentlemen, would mean that I would bring a halt to all my violations of the first commandment. You know what the first commandment is? That is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
this new paradigm shift, this, this understanding that says the design of God in marriage is to make me holy, not happy, would mean that I would not look to my marriage, I would not look to Susie as my ultimate need meter. But it would mean that I would draw that from the Heavenly Father. Don't you think that would be consistent with all that he says and does in his word? Related to that, it would also mean, thirdly, that I would reduce, or at least it would prevent me from asking too much or expecting too much from my marriage. Guys, do you know what wrong expectations does to our blood pressure? You know what happens. Expectations unmet in a marriage leads to anger. Anger leads to disagreements and arguments. Disagreements and arguments lead to distance. And distance leads to big trouble. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, if my whole idea or understanding of marriage is that it is to make me holy as opposed to making me happy, then my expectations concerning it are reduced and I am prevented from expecting too much from my marriage. I go to the Heavenly Father to meet my needs, not my wife. You know, I wonder, I wonder how much anger there is in marriages in this room right this minute and I further wonder how much how much anger could be eliminated were we to adopt a whole new paradigm concerning marriage my fourth proof or evidence or line of argument or whatever you want to call it this understanding this new paradigm would mean that I would need to look beyond marriage to the goal of spiritual growth. That is, I, I would uh, not be asked to love my spouse more. It would ask me to love my God more. Which seems to be awfully consistent with what Jesus calls the great commandment. You remember that? When the scribe comes to Jesus and says, All right, Jesus, what is the, the foremost commandment of all? And Jesus says, Here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, does it not say spouse in there somewhere? No, ladies and gentlemen. It, the great commandment is not to love my spouse like that. And this new paradigm about marriage, this new understanding, this new approach to marriage would mean that I'm constantly being called upon to deepen my love for him as opposed to an ever-flourishing love for my spouse. Very consistent with the great commandment. My fifth line of argument, my fifth proof that I'm calling it. This, um, this new approach to marriage will mean that we will begin to ask not what will make me happy, but what will make God happy. Gang, marriage is not some kind of civil institution, some kind of human invention designed to make me happy. As you know, marriage is an institution that was invented by God to sanctify you. 
You know that text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Go look at it sometime this afternoon. It's a text where Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, This is the will of God for you. Isn't that interesting? And then right after that word you, there's a colon. This is the will of God for you, colon. That means the next words summarize the will of God for us. Don't we, aren't we interested in that? Here it is. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. That is, that God's will for me is that I be sanctified. And I'm suggesting to you that this new paradigm shift means that I'll start asking not what will make me happy, but what will make God happy. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I think is very consistent with his will for our lives, that I be sanctified. Now, because of those five lines of argument, I'm convinced that all of us need a paradigm shift. All of us need to enter this institution with this understanding. That marriage is not designed, the intent of marriage was never designed to make me happy. It was designed to make me holy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me, let me remind you of something I said earlier. To the degree that that happens, to the degree that I do become holy, happiness becomes a natural byproduct. But the goal, the intent of marriage is to make me holy, not happy. Now, let me tell you three things as to how marriage will do that. And then I'm finished. Three things, three ways that marriage will make me holy. Um... If indeed we're right about understanding its intent, which I think we are. But if the intent is to make me holy, if that's the, if that's what marriage is trying to do, let me show you how it will do that. First of all, if that's the intent of marriage, then marriage will be a place where I am taught how to love. Uh, for, let me explain. You know, one of the things that, that I have heard a couple of times, not real frequently, but I've heard it, I've heard people say that this has been said in their marriages. It's probably the cruelest statement that ever could come out of the mouth of a spouse. It's the statement, I've never loved you. And now, think about that for a second, ladies and gentlemen. I've never loved you. That's intended... To be an attack when in fact it is a piece of self-condemnation. It's a confession of a man or woman's utter failure to be a Christian. If, if a man or a woman has not loved his spouse, then it's not his spouse, it's not her spouse's fault, but yours. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. You remember that? And, and, and the man who says, I've never loved you, is a man who is essentially saying, I've never acted like a Christian towards you. Guys, do you know the text? It's a very familiar one that is used in 1 John chapter 4. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it to you. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 says this. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have found, we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Gang, you know, in one sense, it's very easy to love God. Stay with me. It's, it's very easy to love God because God is inoffensive. 
God is, um, God doesn't have bad breath. God doesn't reward my acts of kindness with meanness. God doesn't make belittling comments about me in public. Loving God in that sense is easy. Now, in the marriage context, we really have no excuse. You know your spouse is someone you chose. You chose that spouse that is yours, ladies and gentlemen. And when it, we all of a sudden get into marriage and find that, that loving is very difficult to do, understand this. To fail to do so is simply the, the failure to keep God's commandments to us. If I stop loving, it's not my spouse's fault. Once we enter the relationship, the marriage relationship, we're told by this text, we cannot love God and not love our spouse at the same time. You know, guys, divorce just represents an inability to hold on to the commandments of God. If I can't love my wife, who I can see and who I chose out of this vast number of options... How can I love, how can I love the homeless man in the library? How can I love the drug addict? How can I love the alcoholic or the homosexual? Gang, your spouse may be difficult to love, but that's what marriage is for. It teaches us how to love. If love is at the center of Christianity, and it is, then we are being given in marriage an opportunity to learn how to do something that is at the very heart of our religion. Something prized by us. And not only that, I get to choose the one with whom I learn how to love. Secondly, If I adopt a new paradigm for marriage, it will also teach me how to honor another person. Remember when Gary Smalley was here last February? Gary Smalley made a big deal one Saturday afternoon about the lack of honor between spouses. Instead of honor, we we belittle, we, um, we disrespect, we show contempt. One author said, let's have contempt for contempt. That'd be a pretty wise thing to do, to have contempt for contempt. Honor is something that's, that's not passive, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's active. Honor that's not expressed is not honor. Instead of speaking derisively of our spouse in public, why not try speaking proudly and pointing to his or her accomplishments and good points and abilities? Do you think that would make a difference? If you were to replace derision with public respect and applause, oh, ladies and gentlemen, it would. You know it would. Gang, um, honor is something we do by complimenting, by, uh, by placing another person first and making my spouse a priority and 
and and applauding good points and and covering bad points. Gang, listen. Your spouse is fallen. Breaking news. Your spouse is fallen just like you. It, it, it is guaranteed that your spouse is going to sin against you. Guaranteed. Your spouse is going to disappoint you. Your spouse is going to fail you. Your, your spouse is not going to meet all your expectations. And if you fail to factor that in, your whole understanding of marriage, you are headed for doom. And you're creating a situation where honor is going to be drained from your relationship. Anybody here marry a perfect spouse? Besides Susie, of course. Um, Anybody here marry a perfect spouse? No, you didn't. So um, get to work on pointing out that which is positive. And good about your spouse. And do it in public. Marriage gives us an opportunity to learn how to honor another human being. And then finally. Gang, um, nothing I know of. Really, think about it. There is nothing that I know of that allows me to see my sin any better than my marriage. Maybe Maybe my parenting skills, but... If you want a full-length mirror about your sin, just get married. Nothing forces me to deal with my self-centeredness and my selfishness like my marriage does. Time, space, possessions, they're not mine anymore. Have you ever heard that comment about weekends are yours? Ha! Not if you're married. I don't, my weekends are not mine. My off days not mine. None of it's mine. You know, in marriage, I am, I am virtually under 24-hour surveillance. I have a constant watcher in my life. And it is a constant full-length mirror that is being raised up in front of me. Sometimes I really don't like what I see. You know, I may appear to be one thing behind this pulpit. But I may be something entirely different at home. And very honestly, you probably ought to check that out. I have an opinion, by the way. That's one of the reasons that marriage is so essential to the minister. That is, being in the ministry, you've got to be married. Because it's the, it's the avenue by which I get to see my sin and all of it. You know, if you're single, you can hide by heading home. But the married have no place to hide, ladies and gentlemen. It's hard to hide from someone with whom you share the same bid. You know, I have a theory. Here's my theory, ladies and gentlemen. Behind every marital piece of dissatisfaction lies unrepented sin. We don't so much fall out of love as we fall out of Repentance, sin and wrong attitudes and personal failures, failures if, if, if they're not dealt with, will destroy a relationship. 
And real soon, real early on, we'll find all of those lofty promises that we made while standing in a white dress and a black suit in, in a moment of uh, intense passion. We'll find all of those promises are, are just distant memories if we fall out of repentance. Marriage is a relationship, guys, that will reveal your sin and give you the opportunity to repent and change. Both of you. Gang, one of the, one of the problems that we face in marriages is that people don't like to look into a full-length mirror. They resent what it says. I understand that. I have to look into the same one. But I can't blame Susie for what I see in that mirror. And you can't blame your spouse either. What we need to demand, what we need to demand is a better spouse, a better me. We need to change partner, all right. You bet. But the partner that needs to change is me. Because the intent of marriage, ladies and gentlemen, is not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. You know, gang, I I don't know how this works. I think I know why it works, but I don't know how it works. Were you here when Randy and Lisa Pierce gave their testimony that Sunday? They're a classic illustration. But I don't know why, I, I, I don't know how it works, but all I know is that it works. That is, when a When a spouse, a husband, a wife goes to God and says, I've got to change. Here I am. You've got to change me. I don't know how it works. I just know it does. It may take time. And when I say time, I mean years. It was three years in the case of Randy Lisa Pierce. I just know, ladies and gentlemen, when people go to God and say, I want to change. I want to be a better spouse that he mystically and graciously and long-sufferingly comes alongside and makes us into new people. And all of a sudden, that spouse that has made me so mad for so long becomes my delight. I don't know how it happens. I just know it happens. So I think the real question I'd like to leave you with is this. What's going to be your paradigm towards marriage? Is it going to be something that is very horizontal, very me-centered, very self-orbiting? A marriage paradigm that says, as long as you meet my, my needs and all of my expectations, I'm going to stay in this thing? Or is it going to be something that's real God-centered? That says, the reason that I'm in this is for your glory. And because in the midst of my learning to love and seeing my sin and learning to honor another human being... I've become more like Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, the world gets to see what grace can do for two sinners who say they love each other. Choice is yours. The outcome of one's pretty inevitable. The outcome of the other is that God is glorified. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us that you are up to something really good in our lives. 
that you are up to making us brand new in Christ Jesus, that you're up to making us new people, that you're conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. And I pray, O oh God, that more and more, every spouse in this room, every future spouse, ever every ex-spouse will see that what you're up to is this lifelong project of making your people more like your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, here we are. The messes that we are, we come to ask for mercy and grace to become more of what you would have us be. Lord God, might our spouses see it. Might they see a very serious approach to this whole idea of becoming more like Jesus Christ. Father, for those who have come here today and have not yet met our beautiful Savior, might they see him in all of his loveliness today. Thank you for the privilege of worship. Make us better worshipers, O oh God. We commit ourselves to that. And do so in Jesus' name.